Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I've gotten to go to India twice over the last few years to work with Door of Hope, one of our global partners over there. Now, Door of Hope is focused on humanitarian work like welfare projects for folks living in the slums, medical camps, job training programs, school supplies distribution, and so much more. But some of the most impactful work that they do is actually digging water wells. And they do this primarily in places that don't have any clean water around. This means people have to walk literally miles and miles every day just to get water that's not going to make them sick. It's an incredible thing that Door of Hope does. So currently, they have installed 10 water wells. We actually sponsored one, uh, paid for one to be dug and worked out a few years ago. And then they're doing four to six new ones every year. And because of your generosity, we are sponsoring another one, paying for a new well to be dug this year in 2021. Now, in addition to helping with that humanitarian work during my two trips to India, I've also gotten to do some work with indigenous church planters and pastors there. And I really enjoyed getting to teach some classes, lead some pastoral training, preach a few times, even help lead a seminary graduation. It's been awesome. But the thing that I loved most were baptisms. Baptism in India, you see, it's really different from baptism here in the United States. Not different in the way that it's practiced necessarily. It's pretty much, you know, a body of water and you put someone under it and they come back up representing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we're identifying with in baptism. But it's really different for two distinct reasons. Not the practice of it, but the actuality of what it means. The first one is the caste system in India. And the second one is religious oppression. Now, if you don't know much about that in India, let me explain it a little bit. So the caste system in India is over 3,000 years old, deeply connected to Hinduism, the religion of 80% of India's population. Now, although the caste system was recently made illegal, it still informs the social and religious statuses of most Indians and many of the laws against caste are rarely enforced, especially outside of the major cities where they're almost never enforced. Now, religious oppression really goes hand in hand with the caste system, and it runs rampant in India. Because 80% of the population is Hindu and the prime minister is actually a Hindu nationalist, religions like Christianity and Islam are heavily persecuted. Currently, eight of the 29 states in India have anti-conversion laws, making it illegal to share about Jesus with someone who is not already a Christian. Many of these laws actually provide harsher penalties if members of certain castes, certain higher castes, are being converted. So the caste system and religious oppression, how does all of this affect baptism? Well, let me tell you. When someone in India decides to place their faith in Jesus and be baptized as a Christian, you can't really just go down to your local church or lake and get dunked in the water. People wanting to get baptized are required to register with the state that they live in, and they actually get a new identity based on registering to get baptized. This identity changes your caste, it makes you ineligible for certain government benefits, and often results in being kicked out 
of your community, losing your inheritance, not being allowed to operate a business, or even physical violence against you. During my first trip back in 2014, we went to a small village where we were opening the very first clean water well in the area. Here's a picture of the ribbon cutting ceremony that we did. Man, look at that guy. Please forgive my shocking lack of facial hair. I I had no idea of my beard's full potential at that point in my life. But in all seriousness, it was an amazing day, one that I'll never forget. And the new water well wasn't even my favorite part because you see, after we did that ribbon cutting ceremony, we pumped some of the water into the ground and the village pastor told me that they were going to do baptisms. But in between the ribbon cutting and the baptisms, he and I got to sit down together. We shared a meal. We shared stories about our lives and our faith. He told me that living out his faith in his community was incredibly difficult and that he'd been beaten up four different times since he was first baptized as a Christian in his village. I couldn't believe it. I remember saying, well, I bet you have a hard time getting people to sign up for the baptism like the one that y'all are about to do. But he said, actually, we have more than 30 people today who want to get baptized. And they want you to do it, Zach. Now, I'll be honest, I was a little terrified at first, since the last person who was baptizing folks in that village got beaten up. But when I walked out to the baptism area, y'all, I was immediately struck by the incredible courage each person lined up to get baptized that day was showing. I was going to get on a plane and head back to America a few days later, but most of them would live the rest of their lives in that village. They were putting their livelihoods, their social status, and even their physical safety on the line, all so they could publicly declare themselves a follower of Jesus through baptism. Getting baptized in India is actually a lot like what getting baptized in the first century was like. Early Christians put their citizenship, their financial well-being, and even their very lives on the line when being baptized. But in both the early church and the Indian church, baptism wasn't just putting things on the line or even just leaving things behind. Baptism meant stepping into a brand new community, the family of God. This truth, y'all, it should change how we understand baptism when it's mentioned in Scripture. Because you see, when, when we read baptism in Scripture, we think about our experiences with baptism, but that's not actually very close to what baptism was like for the early church. It's a lot more like India. See, baptism is not simply a symbolic washing away of sin. It is a declaration that you are going to follow Jesus no matter the cost. And it is your formal introduction into the family of God here on earth. This is why Jesus includes baptism in his great commission. Just before he ascended back into heaven, he told his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, over the last few weeks, we've been in a teaching series called Therefore Go, all about this great commission. We have broken it down piece by piece, and today we come to these two vitally important lines, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them 
to obey everything I have commanded you. So as we go and make disciples, Jesus calls us to do these two things, baptize folks and teach folks. The problem though, as I see it, is that we have greatly diminished both baptism and teaching. In much of the modern Western church, we have reduced baptism to a quick dunk in the water and we've reduced teaching to handing someone a Bible and telling them to read it. I think there are a number of reasons this has happened, but the overarching one is this. We have divorced the Great Commission from the Great Commandment. Let me say that again. We have divorced the Great Commission from the Great Commandment. We have treated folks like mission projects instead of sisters and brothers. We have focused on converting people instead of truly loving them. So what does the Great Commandment have to do with the Great Commission? Well, let's look again at our section for today. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, Jesus says. Teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Notice it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, teaching them to follow the old covenant law or even teaching them to understand everything in the scriptures. No, he says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Not what Moses commanded, not what the religious leaders commanded. So here, Jesus is simultaneously reiterating his complete authority, which we talked about at length one Sunday at the beginning of this series. But he's also, at the same time, telling his followers to center everything that they teach on his commandments. Nothing else. His commandments. Not any other ones. His commandments. So, this begs the question, right? What has Jesus commanded? Well, thankfully, we don't have to wonder. A group of religious leaders asked Jesus what the most important commandment was. And he said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. They asked Jesus, what is the most important thing? What, what are you commanding? Love God and love others. According to Jesus, that is the most important thing. He even describes just how important it is when he says all the law and all the prophets hang on it. This is Jesus saying that everything God has ever commanded all comes down to this commandment. Love God and love others. Like a door hangs on two hinges, the entirety of the Christian life hangs upon loving God and loving others. This is what Jesus is asking his followers to teach everyone else, to love God and love others. Y'all, a core part of the Great Commission is living and teaching the Great Commandment. They are inseparable. Now, he also wants us to understand that the Great Commission and Great Commandment are not only inseparable, but loving God and loving others are inseparable. That's an inseparable command. This means you can't love God if you don't love others. Or maybe I should say you don't love God if you love others, no matter what you claim. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but it's nothing compared to what Jesus's best friend John says in Scripture. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. 
anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Notice again, it doesn't say whoever claims to love God and yet doesn't read his Bible is a liar. It doesn't say whoever claims to love God and yet doesn't pray her prayers is a liar. It doesn't say whoever claims to love God and doesn't go on mission trips, doesn't give money to the church, or doesn't live up to a moral standard is a liar. No, it says what makes you a liar is claiming to love God without loving others. Let me put that in another way for our purposes today. If you seek to fulfill the great commission without the great commandment, you are not loving God. If you are trying to fulfill the great commission without the great commandment, you are not loving God. Remember at the end of John's passage we just read, it says, and he has given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. You probably already know, but when John says he here, he's talking about Jesus. But I want to show you exactly where this command from Jesus comes from. See, John himself actually records it in his account of Jesus's life. It happens during something called the Last Supper. So Jesus and his closest friends, they're sharing the Passover meal together, and his friends don't know it yet, but this would be the last meal they ever have with Jesus before he is betrayed by Judas, falsely imprisoned, convicted, and then killed on a cross. But Jesus knows that it's their last time all together like this. So he takes the opportunity to teach them about some really important things. And one subject he touches on over and over again in this teaching is what it really means to keep his commandments, what he really has commanded. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. But anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And then one more, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Jesus seems pretty clear, right? We love him by obeying his Commands. And again, we are compelled to ask, what has Jesus commanded? Thankfully, again, we don't have to wonder. We don't even have to wait long for Jesus to answer in this teaching. He actually bookends this speech to the disciples with perfectly clear statements about his commands. He starts out by saying, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must now love one another. Everyone will know that you are my disciples by this, if you love one another. Then he actually goes on to say it two more times as he brings his teaching to a close. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is my command, love each other. This is Jesus doubling down on the great commandment. He says, if you want to love God, love others. And then he gives us this beautiful picture of what this kind of love looks like when he says, love others as I have loved you. That means love others sacrificially and unconditionally because that's the way that he loves. So back to the Great Commission, when Jesus says, teach them to obey all I have commanded you, this is what he's talking about. 
This is what he has commanded his followers to do. He wants us to sacrificially and unconditionally love people and then teach them how to love others the same way. This is how the kingdom of God is spread. This is how the great commission is fulfilled. We, you and I, followers of Jesus, we have been tasked with multiplying sacrificial and unconditional love in and through ourselves and then in and through the people that God has placed in our lives. If you miss everything else I've said today, please don't miss this. We cannot fulfill the great commission without the great commandment. We cannot fulfill the great commission without the great commandment. This is a vitally important truth for us to understand because you see the results of trying to fulfill the great commission without the great commandment, they have been catastrophic. I want to give you a few examples. Trying to convert people without love is how we have gotten horrors like the Crusades. Did you know that Christian soldiers in the Crusades put crosses on their shield and on their armor? It's, it's mind-blowing, right? Because Jesus transformed the cross from a symbol of violence to one of sacrificial love, but during the Crusades, it was reversed. They turned this symbol of sacrificial love back in to one of violence. Violence in the name of the one who disarmed his followers and who laid down his life for others. Now, during the Crusades, forced conversion was practiced in mass. Christian soldiers literally made people choose between Christian baptism and torture or death. And this wasn't just a few bad apples. Forced conversion was actually sanctioned by the Pope at this time. This happened again during the European colonization of the Americas, when forced conversion under the threat of violence was practiced against indigenous peoples. I was talking to a friend the other day who is from Africa and he explained the horrific effects of Christian colonization that they had on his home country. His country and his people were literally bartered back and forth between majority Christian countries multiple times after being engulfed in wars that they had nothing to do with. These are just three of dozens of examples. See, when we try to go and make disciples of all nations without love, All we do is hurt people and hurt the witness of Jesus. When we divorce the great commission from the great commandment, we are working against God, not for him. Now, by now, I hope you are asking, so what does it look like to fulfill the great commission and obey the great commitment at the same time? Zach, I don't want to cause harm. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to work against God. I want to work with God. I want to bring hope and peace and joy and love to people, not violence and desperation and pain. So how do I do this? Well, whether we are welcoming folks into God's kingdom by baptizing them or showing folks what it means to follow Jesus by teaching them to obey his commands like it says in the Great Commission, everything we do must begin and end with love. Everything we do must begin and end with love. I think the best biblical example of this is Paul. 
Now, Paul wasn't always a pastor. In fact, Paul wasn't even always his name. Saul, as he was called before, spent most of his life fighting against Jesus and persecuting the early church. Scripture even records him presiding over the execution of an early church leader named Stephen. But then Saul has this radical encounter with Jesus. He becomes Paul and everything changes. He goes from shutting down churches to starting new ones. He goes from imprisoning followers of Jesus to being imprisoned for following Jesus. He so intimately encounters our God who is love that he cannot help but share that love with anyone and everyone he meets. So he spends the rest of his life doing just that. He travels all over the place, starting churches, training pastors, baptizing folks, sharing the good news about Jesus and welcoming all people into the family of God. He fulfills the great commission better than almost anyone else in the history of the world ever has. How is he so effective? Love. Love is how Paul is so effective. You see, the basis for absolutely everything that Paul did was love. In his letter to a church he started in Corinth, he says it like this, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would be only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, even sacrifice my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love supersedes everything else. And it's important to note, right, that love was not an abstract idea to Paul. Many of you probably know that he goes on to describe what love looks like in this next section, one that we often hear at weddings, but really is supposed to be applied for all Christians to every person. Paul says that love is patient and kind, that it's not envious or boastful or dishonoring or self-seeking or easily angered. He says that love keeps no records of wrongs, that it does not delight in evil. He says that it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And then lastly, he says, love never, ever fails. See, for Paul, love was not just the foundation for everything else. It was more important than anything else. He ends the passage by saying, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And before we go, I want to share one more thing, show you one more important thing that Paul did and said. And I believe this sentence from scripture is Paul's treatise on fulfilling the great commission. And honestly, it has come to define how I understand and practice the great commission in my own life. It's found in his letter to the Thessalonian church he started. He tells them simply this, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our very own lives too. We loved you so much. There it is, right? Undergirded by love. And this love moved in Paul and through Paul. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our very own lives too. 
See, Paul didn't just swoop into a new city and start trying to organize a church and find leaders and start small groups and do his whole thing. He made deep connections with people. Most of the time, he would actually be in a city for years before the church was launched out on its own. Paul didn't just share the good news of Jesus with people. He loved them so much that he shared his whole life with them too. I truly believe this is what Christians should be focused on today when it comes to evangelism or fulfilling the Great Commission. Because you see, it doesn't matter if you are a, a missionary, a church planter, or a pastor, or a nonprofit worker, a business person, a teacher, a stay-at-home parent, or anything in between. You and I are called to love people and to share our lives with them first and foremost. Telling them about the hope and joy and peace and unconditional love found in Jesus should flow out of those authentic, loving relationships. And people should know that no matter what conclusion they come to about Jesus, you will love them. You will be their friend. They are not a project to you. They are a person. I was talking to a friend this week, and he told me about how this played out recently in his life. Really beautiful. See, he and his family became really close with another family in the neighborhood during the pandemic. They kind of in similar life stages have kids around the same age, and they actually quarantined together a lot throughout the pandemic. And their kids did school online with each other, going to each other's houses, their laptops, doing school online so they didn't have to be alone. And one of their friends has been through some really difficult things in their life. Many of them actually centered around trauma inflicted by a church on them and on their family. This is the parents of the kids next door. Now, recently, these two families, they were together and they were talking about God. They were asking questions like, is he real? Is he good? Where has he been during this pandemic? Other stuff like that. These are one of those deep conversations, right, that you only have with close friends who you love and trust. And during the conversation, my friend talked about how he'd found encouragement and hope and help through our church. And after he shared, the person with the deep church hurt said, I think I would like to come check that church out. Can we join you all sometime? And my friend, he couldn't believe that they were interested in coming to Restore after everything they'd been through. So he and I are having lunch, right? And he asked me how our church could make something like that happen. And I laughed and I told him it didn't have anything to do with Restore. After all, they've never even been. They've never watched a service. His friend wanted to come because they trusted him, because they loved him, because they believed him when he said our church had helped him and they wanted some help too. You see, my friends, we don't just share the good news of Jesus. We share our lives with people. This is what we should all be doing. We should be in loving sacrificial relationships with folks that we're around, co-workers, friends, family, neighbors, our kids, friends, parents, whoever it is, we should be in loving relationships with them. And then out of the overflow of our love for them, we can share about the love of Jesus. I often tell my friends who aren't Christians, the, the unconditional love of Jesus has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And because I love you, 
I want you to experience it too. But even if you decide that it's not for you, I will always, always be your friend. I will always love you. Because remember, we cannot fulfill the Great Commission without the Great Commandment. We cannot truly share the love of Jesus with someone we don't love. We cannot truly share the love of Jesus with someone that we don't love. So here's my final encouragement for us today. Love people like Jesus did, sacrificially and unconditionally, and then trust God to open the door for conversations about the good news of Jesus. And I promise he will. I promise he will. Would you join me in praying? Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you saw a broken world, a hurting world, a discouraged world, and you didn't just turn your back, but you put on flesh. You came to earth as Jesus You live this incredible life of loving people sacrificially and unconditionally. And after you laid your life down and then took it back up again in the resurrection, before you left, you said, do the same. Love people. Love people really, really well. And then you have promised that when we do that, God, that you will show up you will open up conversations and doors so that we can share more about why we are so filled with love. It's because you have filled us up. So I pray, God, that you would first and foremost lead us into these loving, sacrificial, unconditional relationships. And then out of those, we pray that you'd give us opportunities to share about who you are, how you love, and the beauty of being a part of your family. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.